by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. So, so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Jake Morkham. I'm Shane Anderson. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. On the show today, it's not just a protection of the earth; it's protection of the people. They present it as well. This is our positive approach. This is what we're doing to make things look better. Sustainability, bringing more than environmental benefits to the outback. And a New Zealand river has been granted the legal status of a human. What does this mean, and will it ensure its protection? But first, your typical non-electric car will emit near five metric tons of carbon dioxide each year, and multiply that by the number of drivers in the world, and this figure becomes scarily high. Hybrid or electric cars are one way to put a plug in greenhouse gas emissions, but how do they work? To understand this, you have to understand the batteries that power them. Battery technology can be divided as two categories. One is primary battery, which is not rechargeable. The other category is rechargeable batteries. This is Gojiu Wang, a distinguished professor in the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. There are many different kind of rechargeable batteries, such as lead acid battery. So our car industry still use lead acid battery to start our cars. The most advanced one is the lithium-ion batteries, which is the main dominant power sources for portable electronics, such as notebook, computer, camera recorder, and mobile phones. And uh, gradually, the lithium-ion batteries are getting to the uh, electric vehicle market to power the hybrid electric car. Why are they more powerful, the lithium-ion ones? Because from the fundamental. Electrochemistry point of view, the lithium is the lightest element in the periodic table, so the energy density is high. Essentially, this means lithium-ion batteries are more powerful than lead-acid batteries; they'll last longer. But what Goju is looking at in particular is the next generation of lithium batteries. They're called lithium-air batteries. Currently, in the battery research area, worldwide scientists are developing、uh, so-called lithium-ion batteries. From the energy density point of view, the energy density of lithium-ion battery has ten、uh, times energy density than that of the current、uh, commercial lithium-ion batteries. Meaning, these batteries would last ten times as long as lithium-ion batteries, which already have a pretty high energy density. That means lithium-ion battery is very much similar to petrol. That means if this kind of battery system、uh, will be fully developed and applied as a power source for electric car, one charge,、uh, you can drive the same distance as a tank of fuel.、Mm. So it's really amazing. So you're probably wondering what makes these lithium-air batteries different from lithium-ion batteries, and how do they work? Let's take a step back. A battery has two sides: a positive and a negative. 
when you connect these two sides to a circuit, they start buzzing with activity and power up the circuit they're attached to for a short period of time. The lithium-ion batteries, as you mentioned before, are rechargeable. So when you set them up to a charger, the ions in the battery, think of them as little power molecules, will zip up and down the battery, charging it up so you can use it again. The lithium-air batteries are different. To power them up, the lithium-air batteries will actually draw in oxygen into the negative end of the battery. That oxygen will react with the lithium ions in the positive side to form this substance called lithium peroxide. Once this peroxide is formed, then the battery will generate electric energy. These batteries have been a hot topic of research for a number of decades now, but have not yet made their way into the electric car market. The problem, however, is at this stage, this is the the outlook for a longer period of time when it's mature, the system, but it's not uh, so mature at this stage. It's still in the fundamental stage. This is Peter Notten from Andorf University in the Netherlands. And although lithium-air batteries are one of the next exciting advances in battery technology, they still face their own challenges. The problem is you cannot use uh, air because it's a mixture of uh, nitrogen, of course, and other uh, polluting elements uh, next to oxygen. And this is uh, quite polluting uh, the electrode behaviour. What this means is pollution in the air could have an impact on these batteries when they draw in oxygen to power themselves up. So what most of the studies show now, they are based on pure oxygen. And if you have to use pure oxygen, then you have to carry it with you. Mm, And then uh, you are losing your advantage. Meaning you have to take an oxygen tank with you in your car, just in case you need to pick me up. Tesla cars currently use lithium-ion batteries. The current uh, lithium-ion battery can power pure electric car for 100 to maximum 150 kilometer. That means for a city driver, it's okay, but if you drive for long distance, it's uh, not suitable. But the scope in the future is potentially using lithium-air batteries in cars. They could be more long-lasting... But another major hurdle Peter says when it comes to these new technologies is... The most important drive is, of course, cost. And the second leading factor is cost, and the third leading factor is often cost. Think in terms of cost, you have to consider different aspects. You have the materials cost, so the the raw materials. And a very important example, a relevant example, is that cobalt is a quite expensive uh, raw material. And the original lithium-ion was based on uh, lithium-cobalt oxide. It was fully cobalt-based. And that has been changing now. So nickel has has been introduced, manganese, aluminium, etc. And the cobalt is reduced. So materials, raw materials price is one issue. Second issue is, of course, the technology. So you have to uh, make a very complicated uh, system like a battery. It's quite a fuzzy a fuzzy device battery, so you have to optimise a lot. Although lithium-air batteries are yet to be perfected for electric vehicles, in the last 10 to 15 years or so, in a place like the Netherlands, where Peter is from, he said he's seen more and more electric and hybrid cars on their roads, which is a good sign. 
I think in my country they are heavily subsidized. We are leading, I, I think, together with Denmark and the Scandinavian countries, but it's slowly. It's the penetration degree can only be slowly. That is sometimes misleading because people have too high expectations. On the other hand, it's it's a kind of exponential increase. You know, an exponent starts very slowly and then explodes at some moment. And it's good that it is slowly rising in the beginning. What is this subsidy? Well, <laughs> my country is famous for inventing all kinds of tax levels. Uh, in my country, new cars are very expensive. If you buy an electrical car, so some cuts can be given. Do you have for one? Example. No. 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 no, no. <laughs> I have Why still, not? It's sustainable to drive your car till the end of life, right? Mm. Yeah, but you're right. This is a, a common question. I, I don't have one. And frankly speaking, one of the uh, leading disadvantages, uncertainties, I must say, is cycle life. That is charging, discharging, the number of cycles a battery can cope with. And to be honest, this is uh, still a tricky thing. However, some companies are dealing with that. Uh, Renault, for example, the French car maker, uh, they are selling quite some uh, versions of small city cars already. And you are only buying as a customer the, full, the, the car and the battery pack you can lease. And so you mean like um, you're going to this place to change your car's battery and they have one charge that you take? Yeah. You just take a fully charged battery. And then you give them yours and the, then they the, charge that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. It's so similar like you add petrol to your petrol tank. So just take two or three minutes. Where do they do that? Are they doing that now? Yes, I think uh, in Europe, in Germany, uh, they are doing that. In China, in Beijing, Shanghai, uh, some big cities, they are doing that, particularly for taxi. But for Peter, buying an electric car doesn't solve the problem. What we need is a clean energy system that will support their use. The biggest mistake we can make is that we charge our rechargeable batteries in cars with electricity generated by coal plants. People are talking a lot of sustainable energy nowadays. But the truth is, at the end of the day, we have to rely for decades still on hydrocarbon-based sources, including coal. So that will certainly continue for quite some time. But the rates will be uh, slowly going down at some moment, and uh, the sustainable energy society will slowly take over. But this is a very long process. It takes decades. So I would say don't focus fully on the old uh, coal industry. Make use of the, the new advanced sustainable energy sources but because that's also from an economic point of view very essential. You should be there when this is taking place. Peter Notten from Andorf University in the Netherlands ending that story. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. With so much backpedalling from the government on clean energy funding, First Nations elders have gathered together to take matters into their own hands. Called the First Nations Renewable Energy Alliance, they plan to build renewable energy supplies in remote areas to break the dependency on expensive, unreliable and environmentally damaging energy sources. The First Nations Renewable Energy Alliance is barely one month old, but already it's promising big things. 
the Alliance wants to build not just sustainable energy sources, but also a sustainable economic future for remote Aboriginal communities. Gilar Michael Anderson is convener of the Sovereign Union and head of state of the Uwalia People's Republic. I asked Gilar how the Alliance came about. Well, by accident, actually. The, we attended that uh, Community Renewable Energy Conference in Melbourne. We were invited to attend Aboriginal people from different parts of Australia, both young and old. And as we were listening and listening to people make their presentations, you know, we thought, well, here's an opportunity to sort of say, to tell the, you know, this 400-plus mob that we, Aboriginal communities, the remote areas of Australia, are at the end of the power line. And at the end of the power line, bills are expensive. In some communities, quarterly bills are as high as $3,000. For a low-income family, this is nearly everything. Gillar says these expenses are just part of the cost of living so far from amenities. In order to have these luxuries, I guess, it's costing them a lot of money on top of that. The government ordered that certain massive big water heaters be put into the houses, turned up fully, which doesn't necessarily work off the off-peak system out there. The very costly air conditioners, because Australia is a very dry country and very hot country, and because you have to travel a long way for food, a lot of people spend money on buying nice, decent-sized freezers and fridges to uh, house their food so they're not having to sort of go off on a 300-kilometre visit to buy food. Not only are these energy sources costly, but according to Gillard, they're not very reliable either. Anything that goes wrong, if it's going to go wrong, it will go wrong. You know, we accept that, yes, it's very expensive. But at the same time, we are entitled to um, be serviced from those power grids. It's basically a fundamental human right. But building your own energy source comes with its own set of expenses. The Alliance plans to use partnerships with private enterprise to fund renewable projects in remote communities, including 360 Energy, who use Tesla lithium batteries for solar energy storage. Because they see, you know, they will own the assets in conjunction with the Aboriginal people and not only that, we'll be feeding into the main main grid system and so there is a quite a handsome financial return actually on, on them servicing, generating power from the opposite end. So it's, it is a profitable business and of course people see the merit in it and are very interested. However, with profit comes risk. Turning the renewable energy projects into an investment could also leave remote communities exposed to the pitfalls of the market, things like dodgy investors and fluctuating energy prices. Gillar says this project isn't for anyone who's only looking to make a quick buck. We, we will not gauge in partnership with any other potential company who wants to invest if they cannot maintain it over a period of you know, 25 years. We need longevity here and we need insurance that the people are not going to be um, let down after people invest, get their money back and then run and leave the people with a dead uh, utility. The Alliance's ultimate plan is for Aboriginal communities to eventually buy out investors and own the power systems themselves. When they build it, the people become part owners. The profit-sharing arrangements actually return back into the company. And so the original share shares in that will, in fact, go towards buying business outright. This part, and eventually total ownership of power supplies, gives communities an economic independence Gillar believes will benefit everyone living and working in the outback. All up financially, it's securing remote Aboriginal communities, also other farmers, mining industries as well, who are working within the area will all benefit. Securing Aboriginal communities means more than just earning money. Kat Katai is a lecturer with the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney. She says it's forward-thinking projects like this that can make a significant difference to the lives of people in the remotest parts of Australia. I like it because it is a way forward. We really need to get 
more of the community understanding and you know having a solar panels near you start to get a feel for what's going on rather than just oh it's the power's out there somewhere in some remote station. Cat has worked on renewable energy schemes in remote Aboriginal communities. She believes that being able to make active decisions about where your energy comes from makes people more emotionally invested in the future of a community. This positive approach to self-determination could also have a ripple effect in other areas. It's not just a protection of the earth, it's a protection of the people. That affirmation is very helpful. Of course, remote communities are also dealing with a lot of violence. The intervention was claimed to be dealing with this, but unfortunately it doesn't deal with the issues such as the truck drivers through our remote towns. It's not necessarily the Aboriginal community that's engaged in this violence. So it's not just renewable energy, but they present it as, well, this is our positive approach. This is what we're doing to make things look better. The First Nations Renewable Energy Alliance is following the example of the Indigenous Clean Energy Network in Canada. Like in Australia, Kat says the Indigenous Energy Network also grew out of dissatisfaction with the government's management of energy and reliance on fossil fuel resources. It's always helpful to know you're not alone in the world and there's other Indigenous groups doing their work. They've got a very strong movement around the tar sands campaigns in Canada where the environment is being really badly destroyed by mining of oil from the tar sands. The people, of course, they're in communities that are very disadvantaged and very few resources because the miners want them to move out. They're now setting up their renewable energy systems in these work. But while the Canadian Indigenous Clean Energy Network has received financial support from the government, amounting to $715 million over 11 years, the First Nations Renewable Energy Alliance is looking to go it alone. For Gillar Michael Anderson, this is what makes it so exciting. The potential to get into commerce industry and business industry for Aboriginal communities on such a scale is, um, is quite striking. And the fact that it works for Aboriginal communities because we don't have to destroy nature as most of the other big generation power generators do. Gillar Michael Anderson, co-vener of the Sovereign Union and head of state at the Ualia People's Republic, ending that story. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Last month, the Whanganui River of New Zealand's North Island became the world's first natural resource to be legally identified as human. And just days after, India followed suit allocating two of its rivers, the Ganges and Yamuna River, legal person status. Granting a natural resource legal personality allows those who live in close connection and geography to the river greater control over how it's managed and how it's protected. However, these rulings are not without criticism, with some calling it baseless and all for show. Carwin Jones is of Maori descent and is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the Victoria University of Wellington. Carwin says for the people of Whanganui, this river not only gives them a say over what happens to it, but also brings them spiritually closer to the important natural landscape. The significance of this river, the Whanganui River, it's as significant to Whanganui Iwi as any other Māori group would say their river is significant to them. Whanganui Iwi have a particular proverb where they talk about, I am the river and the river is me. So part of the Māori worldview is that the river 
as a kind of key marker of identity. It, it's understood to be an ancestor in quite a literal sense. The kind of Māori worldview is all based around relationships and essentially it's based around relationships which are understood as kinship. And so that includes relationships with, with people, but it also includes the kind of relationships people have with the natural environment. There's a very kind of close connection between those communities, those Māori communities that live along the river. Why a legal ruling to say that this river is in fact a person? What's, what's the motivation behind that? The, the way in which Whanganui Iwi, so the Māori um, from around there, they were looking for a way of giving effect to their understanding of how they relate to that waterway. And so part of that was about negotiating this idea of giving it legal personality. But alongside that, there were other things like part of what the legislation does is it ensures that the river is understood not only just as the kind of physical dimensions of the river, but it's understood as having a metaphysical aspect to it as well, that it's understood as being one complete entity. So it's not broken up and divided depending on on which kind of jurisdiction or territorial authority it goes through. It's actually understood as being one holistic whole. And the key part of that is that now the management of the river has to be essentially required to be done in a way which is in the best interest of the river itself. Does that mean that the river does look after itself or do the people who live in the town close by or the the town that is connected to this river, do they still have management over it? There will be appointed, well, a single entity actually to act as a guardian for the river and that will be made up of one person appointed from the Māori community and then one government appointee. And so those two people together will act as the guardian of the river and they will be the kind of human agents, if you like, in this process. They will be making decisions and exercising powers, but ultimately not for the interests of their community, but they're required to make it in the best interests of the river itself. There are some other advisory and strategy groups that sit underneath them and that provide input from local government councils and also conservation groups, tourism groups to participate in that process as well. What is it about this particular ruling? Aren't there other means to secure its protection? Although this is going to, we hope, have some real benefits in terms of the conservation of the river and conservation values, that's not its primary purpose. Its its main purpose is to recognise the claims of the community there and give them an opportunity to have input into decisions about the river. And the way that they said they wanted that to happen, they said that the closest English law equivalent that they could see for reflecting their understanding of their relationship was was this concept of legal personality. I mean, we have legal personality for other things which are not people. Um, so like, you know, a company has legal personality, for example. So it's just a mechanism to try and give effect to collective interests of of the shareholders and in the case of this river to give effect to what are deemed to be the interests of the river itself. Are there any criticisms around allocating things legal personality? 
Yes, there have been. And, you know, some people say, well, this is just kind of mumbo jumbo and uh, we shouldn't be uh, recognising this with legislation. And, you know, how can a, a river possibly have interests of its own? But, I mean, I've actually been surprised how small a minority that view is. And actually, I think partly because it does address those issues of conservation that a lot of people are concerned about. You know, a lot of people who have interactions with the Whanganui River will be concerned about the health of that waterway. And I think people do see this as an opportunity to really improve the health of the river. There was actually going to be a government follow-up in terms of also setting up a fund to enhance the river's health and well-being. Is that alongside the ruling of it to have legal personality, or is it is that something that's then being decided as the people who will be appointed to look after it? Yes, so it's all been part of the same settlement. So it's been part of a, a settlement which has been negotiated between government and the uh, local Māori there. Those are all parts of the settlement and they've all been given effect now by this piece of legislation. And I should add that, that the other kind of important thing about the settlement too, it also sets out a whole lot of kind of key values which everyone involved has now effectively signed up to. And so what are those? There's a whole a whole lot of them, but, but they include those things like understanding the river system as a single holistic entity. They include things like understanding the relationship that people have with the river, both as a kind of physical resource, but also as a providing spiritual nourishment, if you like. So it is intended not just for... Uh, Whanganui iwi to have more the management of this river. I mean, they could have done that by, um, you know, having a seat on the regional council or something like that. But instead, what it's attempting to do is to sort of change the way everybody conceptualises their relationship with that river and provide opportunities for other types of communities to also have input. India did follow suit in a way that then allocated legal personality to two of their rivers. So by ruling this particular river with this legal entitlement, do you see that as one that crosses geographical borders in terms of they've picked up on this too, so they must have a similar kinship to certain parts of their landscape as well? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, this is an idea which there has been interest from other parts of the world in this idea of legal personality. So it's something that, for example, in, since the, I think the 1970s has kind of been discussed. There are some places in Latin America. So Ecuador, for example, has a constitutional protection of the rights of nature. And so that idea of the rights of nature is something a lot of people are kind of talking about. And this is just one of the kind of first examples of, of it being given quite specific enactment So it's an idea that obviously resonates with them as well. Carwin Jones, Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Law at Victoria University of Wellington. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. You can also find us on iTunes. For more info, you can also head to our website, 2SCR.com forward slash Think Sustainability. I'm Shane Anderson. I'm Jake Morgan. See you next week.